Welcome to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast with Darren Mitchell. If you're a sales letter looking to take your leadership to a whole new level, then this is the podcast for you. We'll be exploring tips, techniques, and strategies to help you take your leadership to the exceptional level and allow you to enjoy more money, more meaning, and better sales results. All right, welcome back to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. Darren Mitchell here on what is a beautiful summer's day here in Melbourne, Australia. And I have the privilege of speaking with uh, the sales doctor, Mr. Chet Lovgren, all the way from Los Angeles, California. How are you today, my friend? Doing well. I was feeling a little under the weather yesterday and a little bit this morning, but I think um, I think coffee cures all. So I think just enough coffee in my system. And uh, now I'm feeling great, ready to roll. Hopefully I don't ramble too much. So Think, I think half your job today on this is not so much podcast host as it is wrangler of my word vomit. So, <laughs> but I guess with the with the word doctor in your title, you should yeah. be able to self diagnose and self. Uh, was it prog- prognic prognix? What is it? I don't know. Prognosis. Oh yeah, diagnose. Yep. Diagnose. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of our mantra for sales doctor in in sales. Uh, we do it all the time as sellers, but you know, a, a doctor who provides diagnosis without examination is guilty of malpractice. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's what we've turned into as sellers. We walk in, we ask our five discovery call questions, and we don't think about the root cause of these symptoms. Pain points are just symptoms. People live with pain, but people solve problems, and people want to know why their deals won't move through the funnel. Well, you only know symptoms. You're only throwing medicine band-aids at symptoms. You're not taking people under the knife or getting them long-term treatment because you're not doing proper examination. And that's one of the things we preach is you have to come with a prescriptive process in your approach to be able to have a proper examination and provide the right diagnosis. Because I see it all the time. People bring me in and it's like, oh, we're, we're, we're trying to solve for pipeline generation is what we're doing. But we know that it's our cold <laughs> calling that's that's actually struggling. And then I go in, I'm like, your reps are actually doing a pretty good job at cold calling. Yeah, there's areas of opportunity, but did you notice that your sales accepted opportunity rate is like under 60%? Yeah. So either the people that are doing the cold calling to set the appointments aren't targeting the right ICP or hitting on the right compelling events or even talking to the right people at those companies or your sellers who are taking those opportunities and running with them are too strict on their op qualification criteria. What determines this is a sales accepted opportunity and maybe you need to do something different than BANT. So let's actually evaluate how we're running discovery, what we qualify and op. That's actually another symptom, but your core problem is just misalignment between the appointment setters and the sellers. It wasn't cold calling. There's some area of improvement for cold calling. Mm -hmm. We could talk about that, but this is your core area. And and I, I wouldn't get there if I wasn't doing proper examination and most people would just go, Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. It looks like four people didn't hit their call counts one day. That must be it. And then what's their prescription. Let's do a cold call boot camp. but that then that doesn't do anything for them because they have this whole other side of the house, this whole other symptom of problems that's <laughs> not being diagnosed or treated. So that's kind of uh that's, that's kind of our mantra and how we look at things. So I, I love that you kind of saw that on paper. This is like the um. This is like the the general practitioner who spends most of their time in an appointment looking up Google, thinking for what is the likely uh, causes for these symptoms, and I'll just prescribe something from a pharmaceutical company that will solve that. What I think is solving the problem, um, and I, I'd love your take on this because we'll delve into the background of sales doctor in a second. But how many organisations almost have a predetermined solution to what I think is a predetermined problem? 
and therefore they give the solution as you just described there which may not be the the elixir that the company needs quite often mm. yeah quite often i and i think that reps are just trained that what uh you know there's the problem that my prospect is telling me they're they're, they're having and then that leads me down a path of questioning where I have a conversation and remember discovery should never be an interrogation. It should be a conversation. We don't want to be shining the light at them while their hands are cuffed to the table, asking them where they were at the night of the murder. We want to be on the other side of the table, opening up the books and, and looking at the numbers ourselves. But you have to first understand in discovery, what are those questions I should be asking to actually validate that this is the problem that they're trying to solve. And this isn't just a symptom of a bigger problem. So there's always the problem they think they have, the problem I think they have, and then upon further discovery, the problem that I know they have based on those questions that I'm going to ask in that business conversation that I'm going to try to have. Yeah. But I think so often we hear, I'll, I'll tie it back to when I sold logistics software. Oh, it takes a long time for trucks to get in and out the door. That must be a receiving and a shipping problem. So I'm looking at these two ends of the spectrum when I'm not looking at what's happening in the middle as well. I just go, oh, our solution does advanced shipping notifications as well as, you know, receive against scan because it surprised you how many warehouses in the U.S. are still using paper instead of actually using a scan gun to scan in shipments. Yeah. And then on the outbound side, same thing. But in the middle, I'm not looking at the at the, at the process of putting items, you know, breaking down pallets and putting them away and what that takes. And then the process of picking orders and validating that those are the right orders, Q and a packing postage shipping, uh, I'm sorry, shopping. Cause some, some companies, they could have five to six different carrier accounts, FedEx, UPS, DHL. So to manually type in the information and look through each one to see which one has the best rate, why not get an aggregator? You know? So there are a lot of things that you can do along the way, but sometimes us as reps, we go, oh, building management or advanced shipping notifications or, you know, scanning software. Like we immediately associate those to features instead of just trying to have a business conversation, yeah. taking that information away, looking through our notes, using AI to maybe digest those notes yeah. from our call transcript yeah. and going, okay, core problem one, the three features that solve that problem, that's what I'm going to do in my demo. And I'm not going to show them everything on my demo or everything in my presentation. I'm just going to hit on that one big problem. And I'm going to focus on the, th the three things that I can do to solve that one big problem, um, supplying features to problems and things like that, tie it back to business outcomes. And then there's always technical stuff that people talk through and other little pain points that get solved along the way that might equal other problems, or they might be problems we can solve in the future. Customer needs change over time, right? So yeah, I think that's a very common approach is people just applying features and product immediately, product and services immediately to what they're being told. It's almost like the retrofit. I've got this fantastic product. We have the best of breed. So I'm going to look for every possible opportunity to try and retrofit my product with all my magnificent features into what I think is a perceived problem, whether it's real or not, I'm just going to force it in. And, uh, and I wonder why we don't get a good conversion rate. Funny. You should say all that. I've, I've given challenges to a lot of sales teams that over the next week, all their sales calls, if they can refrain from talking about their product at all, just to see what would happen. And can you imagine the number of people that are looking at me like, my God, what am I going to talk about if I can't talk about my product? Mm -hmm. That's the whole point. You've got to start thinking about what is it about your customer that you need to know more about so you can get a better understanding from which you might be able to provide a solution to a problem, but only when you understand deeply what that problem is.
Yeah. And if you can't solve that problem for them, you can recommend someone who can. And then vice versa, you say, hey, this might not be something that I could solve for, but I'm sure you have other people in your network of a similar title, other colleagues, other people in the industry. Do you know anyone? Who do you know that is experiencing similar problems that you came to me about today? And would you be opposed to making a warm intro? And the next thing you know, you turned one person that you couldn't actually help into five people you might be able to because you have five warm intro emails. 100%. So I'm interested in getting into this topic, the sales doctor. And um, love to know a little bit about you know, for the listeners benefit, a bit about your background and specifically what was the what was the catalyst um, to come up with the sales doctor? What was the what was the was there an epiphany? Was there a, just a combination of a lot of things that happened? How did the sales doctor come up come about? Yeah, I think primarily part of it was you know getting older and going to the doctor a lot. I kind of saw that where it was like, hey, let me ask. Okay, this is like the you know here's I have a, I have a pain in my knee. Okay, great. And it's like they start in like a flow chart when you talk to them. Okay, pain in knee. Okay, can you describe that pain? Yeah. And they pick out three to four key buzzwords. And then they're like, okay, well, it could be one, two, or three. If they feel X, Y, and Z, then it's one. If it's feeling ABC, then it's two. And if it's, and so they just kind of work. That's what doctors do a lot of times with their little tablet in front of you. They're just kind of working through a little flow chart based on the first thing you identify. I had a doctor that helped me out a lot and got my life back on track. And one of the things that he did was not that it was the complete opposite. It said, well, it could be this, but let's dive a little deeper. I mean, you know, I don't want to just charge your insurance for a bunch of stuff, but here's some things I would recommend us doing. This is why, how do you feel about it? Oh yeah. I think that's great. Let's do that. So he wasn't pinning me in a situation where he's like, do this, do that, do this. So I can make a bunch of money and charge your insurance to put you under a bunch of procedures. It goes, it could be as simple as this could be as simple as a medication, but I've also seen this, this, and this, cause I am the expert in my field and I actually give a crap about what I'm doing and want to better people. And so I'm looking to go the extra mile, make these additional recommendations that said, this is why I'm making those recommendations. But if you're not comfortable doing all that, if you feel like I'm just gouging you to put you through a bunch of procedures, yada, 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 you don't have to do it. I can just give you this prescription and you can walk out of here. So it's kind of like a push pull. You know what I mean? He's kind of pushing me to make a decision, but then he was pulling back a little bit, letting yeah. me know, or I can just take the easy road. Yeah. That made me feel really comfortable. It kind of made me earn his trust. And this was at a pivotal moment in my sales career where I was kind of recognizing that I was good, but how do I get to be great? And I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't grow up Ivy league or spend a lot of time early on in my sales career selling software. I was doing outside commercial sales for insurance selling B2B policies and workers comp policies. I'm very self-taught. I was grasping at anything I could to teach me how to sell. I was reading every book I could. I didn't know all the formalized. I didn't even know what Sandler was until very late in my sales career. You know, I didn't even realize that was a, a thing, you know, and a lot of people followed it. And I still hear about things that I was talking to a guy today and I learned about a, uh, like a, a, I don't, I can't even actually remember what it was that he told me, but he told me about some kind of methodology that they use in addition to challenger. And I was like, I've never heard of that before. So you're always learning, but I think there was this pivotal moment where I kind of applied what I recognize this doctor did for me to my sales approach and used it was successful. And then when I started thinking, Hey, I want to come up with a moniker for myself. I looked around and you know, things like, and there was an outbound alchemist, there was a sales professor, there's, there's a bunch of stuff. And I was like, well, 
professors are boring, right? They just teach us and lecture us. They're very smart. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very smart. Right. A lot of theory, little practice, but a lot of theory. Um, alchemists are kind of mysterious, but they also might be a little bit, you know, magical and a little bit too hippie for people. Oh, well, doctor, doctor's good. You know, usually, you know, and there's a lot of things that go into that prescriptions, doses, doctor's orders, stuff like that. That could work. So self-proclaimed sales doctor, but the idea comes from personal experience of getting older, going and seeing doctors, and then just recognizing the difference between a decent doctor and a great doctor yeah. and someone who actually helped me. And here we are several years later. And there you are. So um, when you think about, I think you mentioned it before, the importance of trust. And when you think about what a doctor does and what a doctor needs to do, they need to build trust with you as the patient in order for you to, um, I guess, listen to them and, and take the recommendations that they make. Trust in selling is is for me one of the one of the biggest things you need to be able to do. But unfortunately, there are many salespeople out there that are so focused on their own agendas, they don't build the foundation, they don't really deep dive into what the problems are that the customer's experiencing or potentially could experience, and therefore don't necessarily build that level of trust. Um, since becoming the the sales doctor, what's what's and it's a it's a really open question. What's changed for you? Hmm. Financial freedom, probably. <laughs> that's uh, sensational. It's a, that's probably the best one. Um, I think you talk about trust. That's that's something really interesting that I don't think enough people hit on because it's it's tough to think about. How do I build trust with someone I've never talked to? Mm. And that's something I really pride myself on being able to do. Is trust is built like like I have a podcast. You have a podcast. If we talked about podcasting, we would probably listen to one another. I could tell you stuff about our process for podcasting and how we have success. You could share the same things. We'd probably take each other's opinions into account because we both do it. But if you have someone on the show who's never even really created a piece of content, let alone have their own podcast, maybe they've been a guest a couple of times and they start trying to tell you how to podcast. You're going to go, well, hey, buddy, you haven't done it can't really trust that you know what you're talking about in terms of publishing cadences, podcast titles, you know, CTAs and the show description. Like I can't validate that, you know, that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So especially when a lot of sellers out there probably have never actually gotten work alongside the decision makers that they're talking to. I never sold logistics software when I went to sell it. I never even stepped foot in a warehouse. I think maybe one time in my life in an actual pick and pack warehouse. Um, you know, my previous job before I went full time on my own, I created content, but I've never been a big YouTuber and that's who we sold to. We sold to YouTubers, uh, well-known YouTubers and, yeah. and people at CAA and United talent agency. I never been in talent management, never done any of that, but it's the ability to understand their day-to-day and their challenges and then outline those. So it could be, if, if I was selling podcasting consulting services and we had a conversation you would probably trust me more than an average seller who's never podcasted before for podcasting services, because I, I would come to you and discovering and go, Darren really want to dig deep into what brought you here today. But ultimately in my line of work, I know that podcasters experience even in a perfect world, one of three challenges. Yeah. It could be increasing listenership. It could be increasing consistent listenership, or it could be monetizing their podcast. Mm. If everything in your process stayed the same, but one area had to be improved. What would that be? 
And whatever you answer there, and I'm controlling the question, like AI, I'm kind of prompting you for a response, right? That's that's all the sales is. It's just prompting people for a response. That's why I think salespeople should actually get into AI because they could eventually translate really well, good salespeople, yes. uh, into being prompt engineers because that's all sales is. Good salespeople are just prompting people to elicit the right response that they want, a controlled response that gets them the results they want to see. So there's my agenda, but I do actually know that those are things that people struggle with in podcasting. So which one is it? And in a perfect world. So even if you think you're the best at it, there's always something that can be changed, right? So you knock people down a peg subconsciously, but you also say, if only one had a change, what would be improved upon? What would it be? I'm not asking you to change your entire podcast. I'm just figuring out what is the most important thing to you, because you might come and tell me this is my problem, but I just gave you three of the biggest problems I can solve. Now I know that in addition to whatever problem, compelling event, triggering thing that's going on that you're coming to me about podcasting for, I know that this other thing is also an issue. And so now what did I just do? I doubled my ROI potential because I have your problem that you're going to talk about and the problem that I also knew from my list of three main problems that people in this in this podcasting world face. And instantly I'm building credibility because you'll go, that's, I mean, that's for every podcast, right? How do I get more listeners? How do I increase listener consistency? So I'm getting X amount of listens every episode. And then also, how can I monetize it, right? How can I make money from this thing that I'm doing? I know every, th- every single podcaster is worried about that, but I just established trust because especially when you think of one, you know, it's pretty easy for someone to come in and say, oh, you want to monetize or increase listenership. But that middle one to me, consistent listenership so that every episode is getting the same roundabout number. Cause I know this, sometimes I have ones that are really low. Sometimes I have really high. Sometimes I have a middle one, Yeah, but that's something where then you really peak and you go, yeah, you know about that because that's an actual thing. Everybody could say increase listenership and monetize. That's like save time and money. Everybody uses that. But that middle one is typically your banger. That's your big point where somebody that says that only can say that if they actually know who you are. And that's like an instant, instant trust builder. Yeah. And when that happens, you're more likely to want to know what the solution to that particular problem is. And sometimes that problem only reveals itself through the conversation where you are building that level of trust because you've got that credibility in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. This is why cold email is so tough to generate opportunities because it's so much easier to have that in a conversation on a cold call. Mm. You know, you can outline that, put that in an email. That's too much to read. Yeah. And then the whole thing about personalization email now is they're like, well, lead with that core problem that, you know, almost everybody faces, but it's not the same with, with right now we're going through SKO season, right? Offsites and stuff. So talking to companies about coming in, leading sales workshops, leadership workshops, Mm. Some companies they've outlined, I mean, there are like a core problem. The big core problem is that when it comes to these events, sales enablement is over their head Mm. with trying to create programming that's valuable. That actually makes sense for flying everybody out, housing them, paying for food, paying for activities and paying an outside expert to come in and and help. But that's kind of the problem I solve is, is that lack of programming and the need for engaged programming. I know that's the core thing, but if I lead with that, with cold outreach and email sales enablement, people are going to go, what the hell are you talking about? Cause it's, it's, it may be a problem, but it's not an overarching problem that everybody recognizes. That's why cold email is so tough because mm-hmm. they say, Hey, I saw you're hiring for this role. I'd imagine that this is the current state trigger and this is what you're looking to do and how I can solve a problem, but they might not recognize that. So it just lands flat. Whereas when I'm on a call, I can go totally get it. Hey, in a perfect world, sales enablement leaders typically face one of these three challenges as it comes up to SKO season or offsites or short-term engagements and enablement. 
da 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 which one is it if you had to improve one but everything else stayed the same i mean cold emails cold emails should be an awareness builder and a way to supplement but i'm really against people ever CTAing time to meet or chat about something i think cold email is just another marketing channel that reps should be using to touch do outreach add to their touch count because it takes eight to 12 touches and gain generate some awareness interest desire on what it is that you do. And maybe it leads to some action if they respond, but it's something to tie back when you call them. Now I'm not cold calling you. I'm calling in in regards to follow-up of resources and information I sent over. Yeah. And chances are the person hasn't read it anyway, because the open rate of cold email is pretty low. So it's probably going to go into the spam folders, which is, which is another, another challenge because everybody's Mm -hmm. doing cold email. We've got to look at what, what differentiates us, what's, what's going to pick, somebody's interest to want to get on a call, want to want to explore something. So then it comes down to that level of trust and it's really hard to build it when you're not known. Yeah. And but things like things like this, like podcasts, for example, that's, you know, you talk about monetization and, and consistent listenership and stuff like that. My view on podcasts and the reason I started this one, you know, four years, nearly four years ago was just to get um, the message out, but to seek to value, add value to a marketplace and whoever ends up listening to it will end up listening to it, right? Had no mm-hmm. had no desire to monetize it per se. Now there's a call of action that I put on the on the extra and at the end of any episode that I do. But it's amazing how many people start listening to it and that creates a level of credibility where you're now talking to an organization who has just happened to listen to the podcast and they already know you before you actually engage with them because they've mm-hmm. heard your voice and they heard the way you speak. Um, and in some cases they know how you how you kind of think and what your philosophy is before you even articulate it. So your level of trust goes up. So I use it as a as more of a I, I guess an awareness process rather than a, a sales process per se. Yeah. And even even on top of that, somebody engages with you, maybe they go to your LinkedIn or your website, they see you have a newsletter, they subscribe to it. Thank God they use their company domain. Now you have a company domain you can target because your email inbox is already warmed up because they're on your newsletter list. That's I do it. that very regularly. Every month I pull a subscriber list of new subscribers. I look at the ones that use business emails. I go find those domains and I see if it's a company I might be able to work with. And I reach out directly to the, their CRO yep. or their or their founder slash CEO, depending on their stage, yep. growth stage or early stage startup. And I Tell them what it is I do, how I might be able to help based on a couple of things I might have noticed from their company page on LinkedIn or, you know, some posts that people at the company had made on LinkedIn. And I see if there's an opportunity just to share the results I've had with similar companies, yep. how I got them there. And it did maybe determine if I might be able to do the same for them. Mm, brilliant. Brilliant. So let's talk about the the sales doctrine in terms of what, what you do. Um I love the, I love, I'm just going to keep coming back. I love the terminology, the sales doctor, because it's actually yeah. quite rare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so people are going to the sales doctor because um, you, you've come from a, an individual contributor um, role and um, you now work with organizations, work with sales teams and also leaders around all of this. What's the, what's the, and it's a very open question again, it's a big question. So what's the, what's the key challenge you find that most organizations are facing when it comes to sales that we can we can help with so having us spent over a decade in sales and, and part of that in sales leadership i got a really good crack at what it looks like especially at early stage startups running my own enablement within my department from 
junior reps to tenured sellers. And even in my most recent job I had before I went full-time out on my own, working with frontline managers. So working as a second line leader with frontline managers. So I've done everything from enabling people who have never picked up the phone before to people who have probably picked up the phone longer than I've been alive to, uh, you know, that's maybe a stretch. I'm pretty, I'm getting pretty old now. So maybe, maybe about half as long as I've been alive. And that, that line worked like five years ago, but um, to frontline managers, right? So probably can't come in and, 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 you know, help coach up a CRO or a VP of sales, but I can coach up a director of sales, a frontline manager, an individual contributor, either tenured who might need to know some new techniques and things that are working or a junior seller who just really needs that whole suite of assistance. Ultimately, if I'm out at a party with my wife or a function and somebody asks me what I do for a living, I always tell them consulting is a really broad term. Yeah. Companies are really good at hiring people for the most part. Companies are really good at filling roles. Yeah. They're really bad at making those roles pay dividends. And so there's two functions to what I do. Either long-term, you're a go-to-market leader and you look at your process and your strategy and, and the process behind the strategy and you go, uh, not that good. I need to fix it and I can come in and help you fix it. That could be full scrape, start at zero. That could be a new go-to-market initiative. That could be you just laid someone off and need a fractional leader to come in and coach, run reports and be your eyes and ears on the ground for the next 90 days until you find someone else. There's a whole slew of things that go into that, but it's either long-term, hey, I need someone to come in here, help me with strategy, process, and upskilling my people, or short-term, which is, hey, we feel good about strategy and process. We have the right pieces in place. We just need some upskilling. We need someone to come in and share a fresh perspective. Those short terms are more like my virtual skill boot camps, in-person workshops, SKO workshops, keynotes, company offsites, leadership retreats, things of that nature. Um, so there's a whole, again, the function of product versus problem. There are two problems I solve for long-term execution or short-term execution. I have a whole slew of products or services, features, whatever in each of those different categories, but it's ultimately about identifying long-term or short-term execution. What's the priority. And so right now, a lot of companies are trying to figure out how to make the most of their SKO company offsite, leadership offsite, leadership retreat, whatever you want to call it, that mm -hmm. they're doing. Well, there's a lot of ways that I can help them specifically in the public speaking, in-person workshops. One company I'm talking to now just wants me to come in and deliver a 30 minute presentation on mindset. Fly me out and do the whole thing. So it's like, that's way quicker than doing a six hour, you know, day of teaching to a bunch of frontline managers broken yeah. into three different workshops. You know, that's, that's a lot more work than the 30 minute keynote. Some companies want to do a virtual 45 minute keynote just as part mm -hmm. of like their, their whole programming because they're doing virtual. So there's a lot of stuff, but right now, like we're in short execution phase. Not a lot of companies are thinking long-term. They're thinking about Q1. Obviously, they're planning for next year, but they're more short-term thinking about Q1. Next quarter, it's going to be all about, okay, we've gotten through some of the new initiatives of Q1. It's not really working. Maybe we need to bring in an expert. That's more of the long-term. Sometimes yeah. it's like 50-50 it's like at that point. Sometimes they're like, maybe we just need to enable our people better. So they bring in short-term execution specialists like myself. Other companies will go, nope, we tried it, A-B test. We think we got to go back to A but we still need to revamp A. So let's, we obviously can't figure it out ourselves because it's not working. We've gone 90 days. Let's bring someone else in. So it just depends whether it's short-term or long-term execution, but there's a whole slew of things that go into, whole slew of tasks and functions that go into either one of those. 
And how, what's your experience then on, I mean, the short-term versus long-term game that a lot of these organizations are playing? Because in Australia, a lot of, a lot of the sales organizations, they're so fixated. And as we get close to the end of calendar year, I know a lot of US companies have financial years that finish in December as well. Um, mm -hmm. the, the rush to the line is such a manic rush where I recorded a podcast earlier this week talking about how in my day when I was a sales leader, we would always get to the end of the quarter and particularly into the financial year and we'd have two cadences per day. We'd have one in the morning, one in the afternoon where we had to sit down and almost navel gaze to the um, to the senior leaders and say, these are the commitments we're going to make. And the senior leaders were expecting the commitments to change from the morning to the afternoon, hoping that some sort of miracle would happen and the numbers would be delivered. The question I've got is um, how much of the work that you're doing from a company point of view, is it so fixated on the number or are they more interested in how do we build the capability that will, over time will deliver the numbers on a more consistent basis? Because I'd love your approach to that, depending on what the answer is. Yeah, I mean, recognize behaviors first, outcomes second, but you can't really say that to a CRO, CEO, <laughs> founder, or a board member and actually get a proper response that's just until until the top down changes and until they recognize that as not all of them are like that but more often than not board members just investors just care about revenue right yeah. uh ceo says well get it done right they say the same exact thing and unfortunately then that's why sales leaders say it to their frontline reps because they don't have a better answer because they've never gotten that themselves yeah but i think specifically at the sales doctor when we try to go through changes, we do that. Um, I think that's part of the benefit of being your own boss and only in, you know, having contractors that work with you is because that's very flexible payroll, very flexible initiatives you can follow through with. And like my number is, this is like the worst thing to say, but as an entrepreneur, I don't have a goal. My goal is to not be broke. Yeah. So <laughs> like that's, I don't, it's not like sales where I set sales targets for myself because it ebbs and flows. And yeah. for me, in my business, it's a little demotivational because Q1 of this year was awful. And I thought I'm never going to make it full time. Then yeah. Q2, I made about half as much as I made in all of 2022. We're in 23. So um, I made about half of the income in Q2 this year that I made all of 2022. Yeah. And then I'm going, oh, I can really do this. And then I had a real bad month. And then I had two really good months. And so it's it, it ebbs and flows so much that I personally don't say, oh, okay, our goal is a million in sales this year. I do have metrics and KPIs I follow with content performance and with sales sequences and outreach. So those are indicative typically though of behaviors, right? If we focus on creating engaging short form content, then we will have a 9% engagement rate on TikTok, which we do. If we focus on having effective cold calls and writing effective emails that are designed not to get people to book an appointment, but to engage with the content we're sending, then we will have high reply and high meeting rates, success rates on those sequences. Mm. If I focus on having effective discovery and holding people accountable to my medic, you know, the medic information that I gather, right. My discovery checklist, then I will move deals through the funnel at an appropriate stage. So I move deals through it about 28 days. And I have like on referrals, I have a 95% close rate on referrals. Mm -hmm. So where do you think a lot of my time goes into developing partnerships with people? Because yeah. I close referrals at 
that means out of out of 20 deals, you know, I'll close 19 of them just about. Yeah. So those are the we do measure metrics and KPIs, but those are typically pretty indicative of the behaviors. And yeah, of course, ebbs and flows with the economy and causation and effect. I get all that. But if you're doing the right things, like look, the relationship between hard work and success is not direct, but the relationship between laziness and failure is. Mm. And so it's all about not just pressing the button, but pressing the button in the right, in the right way. So like individual contributors, don't just pick up the phone and make a hundred cold calls. Cause that's the number make a hundred strategic cold calls to the rights accounts that you've warmed up in the right way that you've done the right things in preparation for. And I'm not saying go spend 10 hours per contact at each account, researching them, but take the right little steps along the way to warm that person up, be in a place where you can effectively speak to them, their business and the challenges that they might be having, figure out how to turn those challenges, AKA pain points into problems. And then make sure that they're ready to make the changes that you're recommending before even getting on that next call. Cause you know, there's tons of lines you can use too for that kind of stuff, which is all stuff I'm happy to share with people later on. But you know, if you do all, if you do all the right behaviors ahead of, time. It's that old phrase, set yourself up for success. Now, fortunately, sales managers tend to put so much pressure on people that they just want to go hit a hundred dials. And then unfortunately they might not have a hundred people to actually call. They might make 40 dials and then they're dummy dialing 60 more dials a day. And that's, that's another problem. You start creating this culture of, of, of fear. And, you know, I have a temperamental father type, type culture, right? My sales manager is going to get pissed if I don't make a hundred dials on my call sheet, even if I call you know, a dead number seven times in a row. So I say recognize behaviors first, outcomes second. And that's that can be challenging because as you said before, you've got senior leaders that are pushing down the expectation to hit a certain number. So that flows down. And that's where it can create that that environment of of fear. They'll just have to dial, dial, dial. Because when mm-hmm. there's a focus on the number, there's almost a case of, well, I don't have time to do the preparation. Because we know that it's better to have a quality call rather than just a quantity of call, um, but that's that's where the I guess where the where the challenge comes in. And as a sales leader, we need to have a bit of a um, a bit of fortitude, if you like, a bit of bit of courage to say, you know what, it's it's I'd much rather my team do forty calls a day and then be high quality calls where at least you have a conversation, than dialing a hundred and getting a really low response rate. Because at the end of the day, you're going to have nothing to show for it. And then come back tomorrow and do exactly the same thing. You're thinking, you know what? We're not going to make any progress here. But if we're actually having quality conversations and we're slowing down and thinking about the process rather than just the end goal, then maybe we'll actually build some momentum. And through the process, guess what? We might create some credibility in the marketplace. Yeah, even even above and beyond that, like you're a sales manager. You probably got there because you know how to sell. Go sell your leader on it. Go sell your leader on the idea that the volume metrics are not going to make sense right now and we need to do something a little bit different. We need to have a tailored approach. Even above and beyond that, not even, not even, well, hey, instead of making a hundred calls, let's just focus on 40 quality calls. Like that's a that's a that's a that's a very easy thing to say and put in practice. Mm. But above and beyond that, maybe like I said, you don't may not have a hundred people to even call. So then who does that get put on? Sales ops and marketing. Yeah. So now you as a sales leader go, yeah, Darren, I, 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 I never say no unless I have to, but you're, you wanted me to have everybody on my team make 50 dials a day. Look, brother, we, we don't even have, 
more than 20 accounts per person right now from what marketing has sent over. We haven't gotten anything from sales ops. I have a list out for data validation to rev ops. I haven't gotten anything back. Like I need some enablement on my side in the process so that I can actually give people a list of a hundred accounts that they can prospect to, or, Hey, Darren, all my reps are full cycle and they're running three to five discovery calls and demos a day. We simply don't have the time to be able to target 50 accounts a month mm. at the volume that's needed to be able to make an effective conversion rate worthwhile. We need to go hire an outsourced SDR agency or an appointment setting company, or we need to look at some AI calling tools that might help us increase our efficiency in our process. Yeah, That's a whole nother conversation is it's not just about oh, do less, but do it better. Sometimes you don't even have enough to do the minimum and that requires the help of other people. But you have to be thinking that way as a sales leader. That's, it's not always on you too. You know what I mean? Same with the seller. It's not always on you. That's what enablement is for. And you have a lot of other forms of enablement with marketing ops and your sales leader. And I don't think people leverage those enough. No, I agree. I think the other part of this is, um, I'd be interested in your take. When you're in an organization, you you kind of get indoctrinated into that organization and you start drinking the Kool-Aid of that organization and believe everything that organization represents. So everything is through the filter of the products and the services rather than taking a objective, completely um, remove the product and the service and have a business-based conversation. Because as a doctor, you don't pro you don't deliver a, um, a recommendation until you understand what the prognosis potentially is. Yeah. And so you're not going to lead with a certain product or a certain pharmaceutical um, elixir, for example. Um, I think too many organizations get too caught up in their own rhetoric and their own products and services to the point where they're leading with that, which becomes more of a push sell versus a pull sell. And I say to teams all the time, you've got to believe in your product, right? But you've got to understand that your team, your, your customers are not interested in your product because if they were, they'd be probably knocking your doors down to try and buy the product. But guess what? They're not. <laughs> so you've got to do something a little bit different. And that is not make it about your product. So stop talking about it. Yeah, you shouldn't You shouldn't really talk about your product until you actually get to a demo or a presentation, depending on what you're selling. But prior to that, I mean, I've seen some of the best cold calls even. I look back and I'm like, they knew the person's name and maybe the company, but that's about it. They don't even really understand. Like they didn't even were an all in one sales engagement platform. Like they didn't even hear that. You know what yep. I mean? It was purely a conversation about business challenges and where I'm an expert because I've offered and prompted some of those businesses challenges that I know titles like you face, because I talk to these titles all day long. You know, if everything stayed the same, but one area had to be improved, what would you, what would you, what do you think it would be? What would you put your finger on? Mm. Um, and then all the other little fun things that we get to do in sales psychologically. My favorite on an opener is, hey, hey, Darren, thanks for picking up. I actually only got about 35 seconds uh, real quick. This is Chet over at the sales doctors. My company is not for me. Showing you that, hey, man, we're not here to have a five minute conversation. This is a 30 second conversation. I always, I always love that opener. And then asking if my company name sounds familiar because you're either going to say yes or no. And I have a line for both. Yes, because you read an email. Great. So yeah. pertaining that email I sent you about, you know, overcoming archaic enablement practices, yada, 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 or yeah. it doesn't. Well, no worries. I sent over some information resources about, you know, enablement and what that looks like for 2024 and how to overcome archaic practices that we've been prone to since the 80s. That said, and then boom, move right yeah. into your conversation, your leading question. Um, but you're, but yeah, it's like, other than that, you know, my name and where I work, but I haven't told you that, you know anything about really my company and what it is I do, 
we're just talking about if I could solve those challenges or those problems that you have or show you how those pain points might actually be a symptom of a bigger problem. Because remember, people live with pain, but people solve problems. If you have a headache, you take, you take, you know, Aleve, Tylenol, Advil, whatever you like to take. If you have a brain tumor, you would write an endless amount of money out of your pocketbook that you have and fight tooth and nail with your insurance company to go get the best treatment possible to get that thing removed and live to fight another day. Right. Absolutely. That's a problem. So people will live with pain. We do it all day long. Yeah. Slap a bandaid on it, you know, kiss the boo-boo. If you have kids, you get the reference, <laughs> uh, taking a leave, but you know, you, you get a, you get a gash in your leg, you go to the hospital and get it sewn up. You know, you get a surgical thing that you need removed from your body. You go and you get it handled, right? Cause that's a problem. It could lead to worse things, infection, uh, death, lots of things. And so when things are a problem, people fix that. It's just a, like you said, features product solves pain. And so that's the problem. We just hover around pain all day long. And so here's the feature that solves that. Here's the feature that solves that. Here's what we do that solves that. But we don't ever dig into like those pain points are just symptoms of a bigger problem. What's the core problem? And to your that's point, it. exactly. Like we just talk about our company, our products and our services. Then we're just applying that to pain. We're not talking about the actual problem, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's the thing that from a selling perspective, great salespeople are good at articulating the problem to the point where the customer in their mind thinks, well, this person, Chet's actually articulating the problem that I have better than I can ever possibly articulate that. So he must have a solution. And so it then puts you in a much better position to then be able to provide that solution should the customer want that solution because this is the other thing that that people don't necessarily think about is does the customer having identified they've got a problem do they actually want to solve it because not everybody wants to solve the problem so if they want to solve it how badly do they want to solve the problem and what's going to cost them if they don't solve the problem yeah so our role as a salesperson is to actually build up that pain so much that they that customer has to take action because the consequences of not taking action would be would be dire and we do that and have to do that in a respectful way. Yeah. Which totally means they'll be doing the buying. They'll be doing the buying. Yep. Yeah. It's uh I I love talking about this stuff because it makes me just think of all the times that I've ever gone through like a highly over-engineered sales training. And then I look at the rest of the team and I'm like, why am I doing better than everybody else? And this is me speaking as an individual contributor from, from the past. And it's like, well, cause I just didn't do what they were training us on. And I just stayed in my lane and you see these people. And that, that's what I don't like about, like, that's why I say consulting is such a broad term. And I actually really dislike that people call a lot of what I do these days. Fractional. Yeah. People, companies don't want to say I hired a consultant because it makes it look like they didn't have the answer, but I'm yeah. okay. Hiring a fractional because that just means somebody's giving me a portion of their time to solve a portion of a task I need done. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then if that was that, then I would never make any recommendations or build anything. I would just press buttons, run reports, coach your reps, right? Like as a fractional yeah. sales leader, you know, but yeah. no, you're actually bringing me in to build something, to enhance something. It's consulting. It's not fractional. Uh, let's, let's make, I love how we've changed that. You know, George Carlin had an old stand-up special where he used to talk about terminologies and how the government would change them. So they didn't sound so bad. You know, like shell shocked in Vietnam. Then at the next war, they called it PTSD. A lot nicer sounding than shell shocked, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it's like the same thing. It's like companies do that all the time to make it look like we don't have a problem, but it's like you do. And that's the other thing is, 
you know, you can only get them to admit it when you've built that trust by showing that you have business being there because you understand their challenges and what they're going through. But yeah, I've gone through so many of these other trainings. One of my best customers, they went, I'm not going to name the company, but they went through a very well-known management company to build out an entire sales procedure for their 180 person sales department at their uh, division of their web services. And they're like, they paid six figures and they're like, yeah, we didn't get anything out of it. And I'm like, yeah, because there's like these four quadrants to a selective sales question. It's like so over-engineered. And I'm like, especially people that don't have a lot of sales training that are moving from a support function to a sales function, this is going to go way over their head. Hey, there's a really simple methodology called spin selling. You can either (laughs) give everybody the book or I can take the book and what I've learned from it and expand upon it and draw those conclusions to the way that I sell. I could do that for you. Cause I think that's the methodology that's going to work. Cause you're a very transactional company mm. and they're like, yeah. And then they come in and then three months later, they've three X their pre-sales pipeline. And it's like, yeah, because we're not trying to like over-engineer everything. It's very simple situation, problem, implication, need payoff. And actually their need payoff had to be tailored a little bit to their company's function yeah. because need payoff is typically, if you've ever gone through spin selling, it's a doubling down effect of the implication. implication what happens if need payoff is more like positive what happens if theirs had to be changed a little bit need payoff was more for the customer to see that future state so it's a whole little thing but little side tangent but it was essentially like hey you can either give everybody the book and have them read it or i can take what i know out of the book apply some of my own practices and give a very simple framework and training because my standard framework wouldn't work because they weren't you know selling exactly the way that i train people with you know, B2B sales, it was a little bit different because they're, they're kind of B2B, but they have a bit of a consumer product. It's a whole thing, but it was like, I can expand on that and deliver this at a very big, at a very fraction of the cost. Mm. That company has been 22% of my revenue this year. They brought me in for three boot camps and they brought me in for a a two day offsite working with their frontline reps and their frontline managers. And it's like land and expand, baby, you know, don't overcomplicate it make it easily digestible. <laughs> also, oh, one thing yeah, go, go, well, I just wanted to add for anybody that does lead sales training or works in enablement function or whatever, this is something interesting. I always point out to people, especially after going through PowerPoint led trainings and stuff. Yeah. 65% of learners are visual learners. So please get away from the two column picture title bullet points (laughs) challenge yourself to be a little bit more visually pleasing to the eye create digestible but creative charts Mm. mind maps processes vision workflows all sorts of different things that make it easy to digest but are visually pleasing to the, the the listener reader participant attendee whatever because that was something really interesting that i realized the other day is that like audibly those people are in the minority of learners. So you might be up there speaking or presenting or doing a virtual call. They're looking at you and the presentation as much as they are actually listening and people actually zone out listening. Half the people listening to me right now probably zoned out already and are on Slack. You know what I mean? So it's, it just happens, but it's the visuals behind staying engaged, having something up in another window, whatever that might be. Or if you're in person, 
being involved with the speaker, making eye contact with the people you're talking to instead of being tied to your presentation. But please, can we challenge ourselves to stay away from the two column picture on one side, title and bullet points on the other slide? Nobody's buying it. Mate, as you as you were describing that, I was just thinking back to some of the trains that I have attended. Not that I've run, because I'm I'm very much the less is more type of approach. And I've I've actually been notorious for not in a two day program not looking at PowerPoint at all. I'll just use flip charts and we'll draw stuff, and it's all experiential. Yeah, I noticed um, you got of, the board. You got the board back there, so I'm sure yeah, you're like the, a, you're like a Simon Sinek. You're writing everything <laughs> out. You're making squiggly lines, triangles, lots of. Uh, what are, what are those called x uh, x um the x and y charts you know what i mean like yes. the axis well, charts that, well, <laughs> well having yeah. said that before when i mean covid changed a little bit because we all went virtual so i was kind of forced to go on to uh and to powerpoint because of the virtual training but leading up to that everything was pretty much on a, on a flip chart and i would mm-hmm. do all the trainings i'd do all all flip charts just and i'd just do it as we as we went um but to the point you were making, it's the number of trainings that I've been to where it's literally you take a paragraph or a or a page of a book and you throw it up on a on a PowerPoint slide and the presenter reads it. Totally not engaging at all. Mm-mm. So you've got to do something different. I use PowerPoints, but I don't narrate them. They're my visual aid to what I'm talking about. Yeah. I use them a lot because especially if you're traveling, flip charts just aren't easily accessible. True. So when you're going to Munich, Germany to do a two-day SKO, you don't want to sound like a prima donna and be like, can you make sure there's a flip chart there for me with four <laughs> markers, number two endpoints or whatever? Uh, you know, your presentation travels with you. I pop my laptop yeah. in, yeah. connect to HDMI. But that being said, it's the visual aid to the conversation that I'm having. And that's really hard for a lot of people because unless they have a big thing like at a TED talk in front of them with their notes, word for word, they can't remember where they're at or what to say. You can't put three pillars, three graphics of something mm-hmm. in a nice column format with a little header of each and actually know what you're talking about on each one. You actually yeah. need it spelled out for you. And that's just, but this is, this is also why Darren, I challenge people stop letting people at your company present at all your workshops. Yes. Because the average person is not a trained public speaker. The average person is not like, like you and I, We've done this long enough that it's just second nature. I don't have yeah. notes anywhere. All this conversation is from here. Yeah. It's all experience and just free-flowing conversation. Yeah. Imagine how that is when it's structured because I have a visual aid with me, but I'm not narrating directly off of it. And that's why I think it's so funny that companies are like, again, right? Like your parents, you don't want to hear your mom and dad tell you to do something for the high other time, but you'll listen when your cool uncle tells you, right? That's the point of an outside speaker. You're hiring someone who is professionally trained, who has rehearsed, prepared, has trained in public speaking, knows how to deliver PowerPoints. I'm not just coming into, that's, that's one of the big things that we overcome with objections all the time. When people think about hiring me for outside speaking is they think about all the people who have led trainings at their company and they're like, yeah, but trainings don't go over really well. Yeah. Because you don't have someone who's invested $50,000 into learning how to be a public speaker and a presenter and has applications out to be a TEDx speaker for things and like has gone to schools and colleges and done SKOs and workshops for like, this is my job. I'm an expert in that craft. You know, I can stand and deliver and the SDR manager you have, who's been doing sales for less than four years, probably doesn't have that level of expertise. So it's just as much about the art of it as it is the content Mm -hmm. and the engagement inside. So another challenge for sales leaders, there are a lot of people who are very inexpensive who will come help you. 
but don't just write off training at SKOs or company events or workshops because they don't feel that great when you do them virtually on Zoom because that's a different format. You're having someone who is not a professional paid speaker who excels in this, trains in this, works on this, rehearses this day in and day out doing your presentation. So there's a huge, huge difference. Yeah. It's like if we threw somebody up who's never done a podcast before to host your podcast for a day, it'd probably be ultimate, it'd probably be absolutely tragic. Right? <laughs> You'd probably be going, now I'm not doing that again. <laughs> they've never done it before. Of course, they've had a conversation. That doesn't mean they know how to run a podcast episode. No, they you don't. know what I mean? <laughs> But Matt, having said that, there's probably people listening to my podcast and think, oh my God, he's all over the place. It's all it's all completely unstructured. But as I showed you, I don't have questions on this thing. Right? <laughs> that's me piece of paper. So for those not watching the video, it's uh it's a blank piece of paper that I've just shown Chet. <laughs> so um hey, I'd love to great conversation so far. We touched on before we press record this thing called artificial intelligence. And how AI is potentially going to um, continue to take over the world. Um, there's a lot of different, I guess, uh, commentary around the benefits of AI, but also the challenges around AI. From your perspective and the work that you're doing in organizations, what's the what's the narrative at the moment that you're seeing, um, certainly in LA and the, and the organizations you're working with, around artificial intelligence as we move into 2024? Yeah, we're all screwed. <laughs> <laughs> you said that before we press record. Love it. Make your money while you can. Start buying real estate. Live like BlackRock. That's my goal. <laughs> um, it's uh, it, actually it's it's interesting you talk about that because one of the things in the back of my head, I even um, don't know if I'll go to hell for this or not, but. Uh, at the offsite I did, I was talking to my point of contact and I said, I am actually surprised that you have 180 people doing this. With the level of resources you have, I would be surprised if you couldn't implement an AI chatbot with just transcribing my workshops I've done with you to yeah. teach it to effectively sell to the 80% of customers that hit your line. Because it's all text selling to it's all over support mm -hmm. lines and stuff with, you know, reserving 20% of your people to do the very VIP stuff, touch the high the high-minded clients that are bringing in the big bucks the majority of this you could out i would be surprised that you couldn't figure out how to do this via ai i see it time and time again too air.ai is a cold calling solution that they were the ones that did the tesla ai call it was incredible to me i said that is great they even hit on nuances and idiosyncrasies that sellers have uh challenge statements all these sorts of things it was very well done I think the best thing for salespeople is to understand that right now, AI is the worst it's ever going to be Yeah, like email in the eighties. So if it surprises you now, you better buckle up Yeah, because this is the worst it's ever going to be right now when it comes to generative AI. And that's important to understand the different types of AI, but generative AI. So when you think of content creation, like mid journey, right? For generating pictures, graphics, chat, GBT, generating content. Generative AI is really not yet meant to be used out of the box. There's mm -hmm. kind of four stages from inception to finalized product. You ideate, you create, you refine, and then you implement. So the goal of AI should really be on generative AI to handle 50% of that work, ideate and create. Then you go and look at the results, refine, add the human element. Then you implement, and then you have more time for strategy and you know, looking at those results. So I think that's important to understand too, is it's not yet meant to be out of the box. 
So whether you're using that to craft sales emails or do account research for you. Also, Jeb Blunt, I heard say very recently, a great, great sales coach and consultant. I think he's a consultant, but he wrote in a ton of great books, well-known sales guru said, just because something should be done doesn't mean it has to also. So I've seen a lot of people on LinkedIn showing like these ways you can use AI to do like mass account research and the information to polls. And I look and I go, yeah, I actually think that would take me a lot longer to actually then take that information and make it actionable than the way that I do account research right now. Like I, I am willing to explore, but I could just see it was, it was worth more trouble than good. And I was thinking, it was like, yeah, it's cool. It can do that. You know what I mean? You know, just cause I'm 40 and I can do a cartwheel doesn't mean I probably should, because I might do a cartwheel and accidentally kick one of my kids. Cause I don't, I have no spatial awareness or I might <laughs> slip a disc in my back, you know, just cause I can, doesn't mean I should. Like, I think that's a very interesting phrase we need to think about yeah. when it comes to AI, Yeah. but I would encourage sellers that especially look, I know a lot of people at fortune 1000 companies and they are figuring out ways to implement AI in all facets of their business and cut costs and layoffs and all that stuff. You're seeing Spotify lay people off, Etsy lay people off. These big companies are doing it. So if you work at an early or even a growth stage or a startup, startup early stage or growth stage company, you have a very good opportunity to be on the forefront of prompt engineering and understanding AI. And I would really take advantage of that and figure out how to write prompts, how to be an engineer of prompts, because this could open up a whole new world for you Mm. in terms of, I mean, they're hiring prompt engineers at Facebook for $250,000 a year. You know, who knows what the level of experience those people have because AI is so new. Like, what do you have one year experience playing with prompts now that ChatGPT has been around for a little over a year? Yeah. But I, I do encourage people especially if you're talking about startup and early stage companies, when you think about product led growth where people can just self-serve, I like most of the software I have right now, I don't need to talk to someone. Even my CRM, I didn't need to talk to someone. I've used HubSpot before. I bought it without talking to someone. I'm renewing it without talking to someone. I don't think any of the software I have, I actually talked to a sales rep. It's all self-service. Now, granted, they're not, you know, $20,000 a year solutions. They're all pretty pointed solutions that cost under, you know, 500 bucks a year, yeah. but I didn't talk to a single person to buy any of that. So sure. you think about how AI can further facilitate that. I mean, without AI, they're already facilitating it. Product-led yeah. growth has been around for a long time. Think about how much more work AI is going to be able to do when you even get to companies who are on the verge of product-led growth, who might be a little bit bigger than that, but it can delay companies. It can delay companies that need to get out of product-led growth. It can also help companies stay there longer, but it can also encourage companies that are on that brink to maybe just keep going, move back into product-led growth. So learn it, have fun with it, experiment with it, have fun with it, I think is the most important part. Like I was trying to create like a dystopian, um, neon light, New York, garbage on the street, steamy, uh, steamy, uh, you know, sewer manhole cover coming up out of the dust guy in a hooded robe walking down the street like this kind of like neo-noir blade runner type comic book with mid journey yeah i didn't get very far but i had fun just kind of learning how it works (laughs) and seeing how it works i spent i did i spent like two hours on a sunday night dinking around with it i got like 12 images and i was like this is kind of cool you know like it like i just was like trying to create like a anime type looking neo-noir comic book strip it was just generating pictures yeah yeah it was just fun i was like I was actually thinking like, how can I implement this into like a 20 second commercial for myself on LinkedIn or something? But it's, it's, you know, have fun with it, experiment with it, 
chat gpt now has what they call gpts which are like gpts specific apps just for things i you know i i try to be a, a more self-independent husband sometimes and so i use the laundry gpt sometimes so when i'm doing my laundry so my wife doesn't have to worry about it, i'm like i got ink on this shirt how do i solve it they have a laundry gpt i mean like i said yeah. like have fun with it at first it's like golf, right? I really want my son to play golf because I think he could be really good at it and he could make a lot of money doing it someday. But when I was talking to a golf instructor, he said, I frankly know, like there's always an argument about how much do we worry about form versus function early on. Look, if the kid doesn't have fun doing it, they're never going to do it again. So it doesn't matter if they get the perfect form because they'll stop doing it. Yep. So one of the things I like to do is when we first get out to the golf course, I like to go close to some water and I like to see if the kid can just hit it on a par three in some water. I'll give him 10 golf balls just to hit in the water. And then we'll yeah. focus on the form. But at first, I don't put them at a range or anything. I take them out to a tee. I hit them, hit it in the water. And it's so much fun for a kid to hit a golf ball into water. They think it's so much fun. And so like, have fun with it first. Because if you don't have fun with it, you're not going to want to keep doing it. Like, I want to keep experimenting with all of these chat GPT, GPTs, because they're there. And it's kind of fun and this and that. And then figure out how to apply it to a business use. But it's uh yeah ai is pretty terrifying i mean open ai the board had concerns about ai becoming sentiment and it's dangerous to humanity and that's why they ousted sam altman in the beginning and now he's back on the board but i mean for goodness sakes they basically said you created skynet and they got him out of the board and <laughs> so, so that should tell you something right it does it does um Mate, i think it's a it's a good time to wrap up because i think the key thing there is ai is is here um, but have fun with it. You look at how we can use it as an enabler rather than as a um, a disabler as well. So, mm -hmm. um, mate, this has been a, a phenomenal conversation. Greatly appreciate you coming on the podcast. For people that want to know a little bit more about the great man, the sales doctor, and Chet, where's the best place for them to connect with you and learn a bit more about what you do? Yeah, you could check me out on LinkedIn. I have resources, access to all resources in my uh, my features section. I'm on TikTok, YouTube, have a sales podcast that we do. Probably going to change since we find ourselves talking about more things than just sales and marketing. But yeah, every single free downloadable resource I have, every podcast episode, every edition of my newsletter, my newsletter, anything you could purely want to learn, educate, engage with me, you can go to my LinkedIn. Just search Chet Lovegren. It's a, there's a link in my featured section. Brilliant. Awesome. So thank you so much for uh, for jumping on. It's been a um, it's been a great conversation. I know you've got an appointment to get to now. So um, if we don't speak before, have a terrific Christmas and uh, festive season. And um, no doubt we'll talk again in twenty twenty four. Sounds good, Darren. Thank you so much. Cheers, mate. Good on you. Thank you for listening to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. I trust the information in this episode has been helpful in your journey towards becoming exceptional. And remember, please take the time to rate the show, subscribe to the show so other people can find it. But also, if I can help you, jump on my calendar, go to leadwithdarren.com and let's have a conversation about how I can help you along your journey to being exceptional.